Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to The Critic podcast. My name is Jo Bartosz. I'm a journalist and regular contributor to The Critic. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Maya Forstata. As listeners may be aware, Maya has been at the centre of a landmark legal judgment. Overturning an earlier employment ruling, last week Mr Justice Chowdhury found in Maya's favour, effectively protecting gender-critical beliefs in law. This has been welcomed as a victory for freedom of belief, speech and expression. So Maya, it's odd because whilst I don't think we've actually met, I've been following you for such a long time on social media, I sort of feel like I, I know you. Could you perhaps explain to our listeners what your beliefs actually are and why they're deemed to be controversial by some? Yes. Hi, Jo. Um, so my belief about sex is the ordinary belief that most people hold, that if you ask your mum or your grandma to describe to you the facts of life, um, that's my belief, that... Um, boys grow into men and girls grow into women, that men have the type of bodies that produce sperm and women have the type of bodies that produce eggs and can go on to um, get pregnant, carry a pregnancy, have a baby, lactate. And we're built to do those two things. And that doesn't mean that everybody has to do that or that, um, you know, if someone is infertile, that they're not um, fully a man or a woman, but that human beings come in two types which relate to sexual reproduction. Uh, and, you know, until five years ago, that was a completely uncontroversial view. And if anyone had told you that, if anyone had told me uh, that it would be, that it would be controversial, I would not have, I would not have believed it. Um, and that's the view that I've got in trouble for. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, um, and just like watching your case unfold has had me on tenterhooks, um, particularly after the initial ruling, um, which which deemed that that very, you know, ordinary uh, point of view uh, wasn't worthy of respect in a democratic society. Um, how did it feel for you to be at the centre of that? Um, it, it's been like boiling a frog. Um, you know, I, it sort of started with me tweeting about sex and gender in relation to the UK government's consultation on the Gender Recognition Act in, in 2018. Um, and then there was a kind of six month process of me gradually losing parts of my job until I lost my job. Uh, and then launching the crowdfunder, which brought me into the public eye for the first time. And then obviously losing and the next day, JK Rowling tweeting about it. So each step in that has been um, quite stressful and each step has sort of brought me more and more into the public eye in ways that I had never planned. Um, but at each step, it was sort of obvious what I had to do next, which was to, to keep going because, um, you know, it was an injustice for me that I lost my job. Uh, but then, as I discovered, it was an injustice for thousands of other women who are mainly women but also men um who are frightened of speaking up at work mm -hmm. and um 
like I guess sort of that must have been very difficult to um to sort of live with that hanging over you what what made you realize it was so important what sort of gave you the impetus to take it to an employment tribunal um well the so what happened was when I lost my job I didn't know that I had employment rights because I wasn't a full-time employee on a regular um, a regular PAYE contract so I didn't know that there was a possibility of going to an employment tribunal but I just tweeted about the fact that I'd lost my job as part of a thread about you know why I wanted people to think about this this issue and write about it um, and uh, there were feminist lawyers who were waiting for a test case. I didn't, I didn't realize this. And they saw what happened to me and kind of came to me and said, um, you know, explain to me about belief discrimination, which I had no idea about, that there are laws about belief discrimination that protect people with religious views, but also with non-religious views, and that they wanted to test whether um, uh, belief and lack of belief in gender identity could be protected as a as a belief um, and so then you know once it got started my email inbox my dms almost daily now i'm getting messages from people saying this has happened to me at work either i've been um you know dragged through a disciplinary process for saying something like jk rowling isn't transphobic or i'm afraid at work for that if I say what I think, I will be reported and I will lose my job or my career will be damaged. Um, so, you know, just at each step, it's sort of become more and more obvious how many people are affected by this. And I'm, you know, the poster child for it. Yeah. And um, I mean, something that um, that I think organisations have been notable by their their absence in a way. Um, so it strikes me that um, in very general terms, it's men who make women unsafe. So the right to say I need a single sex space is something that obviously primarily impacts upon women. Um, do you feel let down by the mainstream feminist organisations that have sort of not publicly supported you and have stayed fairly quiet on this topic? Absolutely. I feel let down by mainstream feminist organisations uh, like Fawcett Society, um, you know, the Women's Equality Party, let down by human rights organisations and even the kind of meta organisations that, you know, that are not campaigners, but are there to um, study and analyse what's going on. So the kind of business and human rights organisations that ought to at least be paying attention to this and saying, um, you know, there's a controversy here. What are the two sides? What are the different sides? What are the issues? And instead, there's just been silence from from all of them, both from the campaigners and, and the commentators. Um, and clearly, I mean, I know because I talk to people, um, there's fear inside all of those organisations. So those organisations that that uh present themselves as being about courage and being about uh speaking truth to power when it comes to it they've they've been missing in action and that's what makes it so dangerous for anyone else to speak up you know if if 
when I was losing my job, if I had been able to point at the Fawcett Society and say, look, they've done a webinar on this, they've hosted a panel, you know, they, they didn't even have to solve the problem. But if they had shown that it is um, respectable to talk about it, if, you know, the Royal Society, if, you know, the, the places that host debates and dialogue in society had shown that this was a, um, a respectable discussion to have, then it wouldn't have been so dangerous for individual women putting everything on the line to try and have a debate about what does self-ID mean in relation to women's prisons or in relation to women's refuges? What does it mean in relation to um, workplace facilities where, you know, um, firefighters sleep in dormitories together? Mm -hmm. And all of those situations, you know, they're quite out of um, out of sight and out of mind for people who work in NGOs, who work in offices, who don't, you know, are never going to be forced to share a bedroom or a shower or a locked mental health ward with somebody with a male body, or they don't think they will. Um, and so it's quite easy for them to say, be kind, um, you know, trans women are women, there's no problem, there's no risk. And by them not stepping up and not saying, actually, there is a risk, let's look at it, let's consider what the what the trade-offs that are being made are. They made it, you know, just hugely dangerous for anyone else to talk about it. And then they'll point at it and say, oh, it's a toxic debate. But it's toxic <laughs> precisely because those organizations haven't done their job and haven't haven't made it a safe, a safe space. Yeah. No, absolutely. I can I, I totally appreciate where you're coming from with that. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know how you came to hold the, um, the well, <laughs> fairly, <laughs> fairly obvious belief that, that you do, the fairly, um, I, I don't think it's a particularly remarkable belief, really, to acknowledge that there are two sexes and that it's impossible to change sex. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, how have you have you did you ever sort of get swept along with the um be kind narrative with the trans women are women narrative or um or has your sort of background because I know you have a background as a feminist campaigner did that perhaps sort of inoculate you from some of the worst of the wokery um I think well my degree is in agriculture um I'm quite down to earth and I'm you know I sort of biology is you know my my underlying thing is biology and evolution is how I understand and explain the world. And so, you know, sex, people, people come at this from a, from a humanities um, background, tend to think about sex and race as being similar kinds of things. And we think about fairness in terms of race, and we think about liberation movements in terms of race. And then we think that the principles of that can be applied equally to sex and sometimes they can you know you you can um progress that's been made in one liberation movement uh, or in one civil rights movement can you know can be used and harnessed for another but sex is just completely different kind of thing 
to race. You know, race is only skin deep. It only developed relatively recently when, you know, human beings kind of spread out around the world into different um, climates. Whereas sex goes back to, you know, the very first sexually reproducing um, cellular organisms. You know, it's, it's way before anything that looks anything like human beings. It's so deeply ingrained into life. And so um, I am a feminist, but underlying that I'm a, I, you know, I believe in biology and, and, and science. So that's kind of where it, where it came from. And then I think I hadn't, you know, thought about it very much. And, you know, I, I understood there are transsexuals, there are transvestites and um, people should be free to live their life as, as they choose. Um, and the questions about, you know, what do you do when somebody's um, desire to live as the opposite sex comes into conflict with, with members of that, that sex, um, you know, particularly on sport, um, but also in things like prisons and women's refuges where, you know, people have nowhere else to go or they're, they're forced to be there. Um, kind of thinking through that stuff I think takes some time and people have to think about what do we you know obviously there's this whole question about what is a woman but also what is trans and people think people talk about trans and they think they're talking about um, a fully medically transitioned um, transsexual but often you know often as we know it's not and in practice it would be rude or illegal to ask and so then you have to think about I think how you know how do you organize society in a way that gives people safe clear unambiguous single sex spaces and services where they're needed but that also cater for people who can't you know who who can't be accommodated in spaces for their own sex and who may want to be accommodating spaces for the opposite sex, but but we will have to say no, because you know you can't um, you can't do both. You can't have a space that is single sex and is also mixed sex. And the question of where do you draw the line, I think, needs to be really opened up and looked into. And you know, so I can't say I kind of came into this with all of the answers, but what I came into it with was the idea that when you have a difficult set of social questions, you have to be able to um, to look at them and to talk about them without people being shouted at and being made to fear for their livelihoods. Yeah. I mean, why, why do you think it is such a taboo topic? I mean, it, it seems to have almost sort of come out of nowhere in the past few years and um... And just to have an absolute stranglehold on everything from, well, international NGOs to, to the media. Yeah, I think, um, I think at the heart of it that, that, you know, there's been this massive growth or rapid growth in transitioning children. And the part that's most difficult to talk about is the transitioning of children and the impact on children and 
you get the biggest pushback I think when you try to when you try to talk about that and we've seen that with um you know the whistleblowers of the the JIDS um gender identity development service at the, at the Tavistock um trying to say hold on a second you're taking children who appear to be uh you know kind of proto-gay and lesbian children you know same-sex attracted working out what their identity is and what their sexual orientation is or before they've worked it out but feeling um you know feeling different and being told you're in the wrong body and we can fix it and um if anyone disagrees with this they hate you and they want you dead mm -hmm. uh you know it's a, just an incredibly destructive um kind of well i'm gonna say youth movement but it's not a youth movement it is you know it's being um uh you know imposed on and promoted to to children um and and a lot of you know when i started talking about this and writing about this i wasn't really talking and writing about about that side because i could see that there were other people who were much more qualified than me doing that you know um stephanie davies awry at transgender trends and, you know all, all the people you know and the doctors and the therapists and and people who was, had specific knowledge about um child development and so on and i i wasn't talking about that all i was talking about was can we can we have a space for the debate but i think that you know the closer and closer you get to the impact on children the harsher um the responses and you know it does make me think about you know the the catholic church um scouts uh, gymnastics all of the institutions that have been uh historically corrupted to protect child abuse um and who have a uh you know who who protect themselves as institutions first and foremost and where you have had whistleblowers or where you've had people raising the alarm about um children being you know being put at risk organizations tend to protect themselves and then you have a scandal and then you have an inquiry and you have lessons learned and and we say this must never happen again and it's and it's just happening again with a different um you know a different facade on it yeah yeah no, I, I i totally know where you're coming from with that um and i mean something that um uh, i thought was perhaps significant was that uh i understand the employees who complained about your tweets were based in america and that your solicitor, Peter Daly, so he, he wrote a, a beautiful uh, post on LinkedIn and he observed that uh, social media companies have put a scold's bridle on European free speech. Um, so do you think perhaps um, this is a, a US import to some degree, um, the ideology? And do you think um, social media companies in particular will now perhaps be forced to rethink um in light of your ruling um uh, the sorts of discussions that they allow on their platforms i do i i, I definitely think 
you know, the, the debate and the shutting down of the debate in the US is, is so much more fierce than, than in the UK, um, partly, I guess, because that's where the, the ideology developed from, but also because there hasn't been an um, effective resistance in the way that there has been in the UK. Um, and social media companies are covered by the Equality Act. They will have to rethink what they're doing in terms of, uh, you know, people getting thrown off of Twitter for saying that men are not lesbians. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, it's it's madness, but it's but it's true. And and you know, and being thrown off social media is, you know, it's a big deal for, you know, it, well, I mean, it's it's part of how people earn their living and yeah. make their um, participate in, in a democracy particularly you know now we've all been locked in our houses but um the you know people being thrown off of off social media for disagreeing with with gender ideology uh is is now i think shown to be against the equality act in in the uk and and interestingly the judgment um it's a UK employ employment appeal tribunal judgment, but it drew quite heavily on the European Declaration of Human Rights on Article 9 and Article 10, uh, freedom of belief and freedom of speech, and how that relates to Article 17, which is about um, not undermining other people's human rights. And so although it was, although the framework of it was the Equality Act, the underlying framework was the European Convention on Human Rights, which means that this judgment will be influential across Europe. Um, and so I think, you know, it may take some time, but I do think the social media companies are going to have to rethink what they do. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and I guess with, with regard to um, just ordinary workplaces uh, across the UK, what, what do you think, what do you think the ramifications of the, the ruling will be? Um, sort of, um, I, you, know, you said that you were contacted by, um, by quite a few women in particular who, who were sort of had been silenced at work. Um, do you think this will sort of filter through, throughout workplaces or do you think it will take quite a long time to unpick some of the misinformation that organizations like Stonewall have been accused of spreading? I th I think it will, I think it's having an immediate effect in that um, people already feel uh, kind of relieved that there is this clear statement in law that belief that sex is real and lack of belief in gender ideology are both protected and because often what happens in a workplace if they're not um sort of actively stonewalled is that um or or they're not uh you know actively promoting this ideology is that somebody says something and somebody else complains and then the people the decision makers uh, are, are sort of lost. They don't, they don't know where to turn for clear benchmarks and then, you know, they just want the problem to go away 
it's not that they're ideologically captured, it's that they are afraid themselves and they don't understand the issue and they, um, and they panic. And so I think in those situations, um, women who are speaking up, if a complaint comes, they can then point at my judgment and say, don't panic, this is, this is what the Equality Act says. And, if, and at that point, they can kind of diffuse the situation by saying, you know, there is a benchmark, there's a legal, there's a legal judgment. Um, you don't have to take everything that somebody points to and says that's transphobic as being harassment. You can use your ordinary judgment, which you, you know, which HR departments do all the time. They judge whether something is um, harassment in other contexts, but they've been told that um, even defending something against being said to be transphobic is transphobic. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. that they're, they're in, in this trap and, and they, you know, often the person who, whose desk it's landed on has no idea and doesn't, uh, doesn't want to offend anybody um, and sees that the, um, and often it's not a transgender person who's, who's complaining. Um, but it's so, you know, it's an ally, it's somebody who, you know, and frankly, it's somebody who's seen that this is a way to bully and um, bully and harass women. And so I think, you know, all of those cases which, which don't come to court, but which end up with um, women, mainly women, but, you know, also some men, you know, going through, um, these investigations at work, you know, where um, like Johnny Best at um, Huddersfield University went through one and said, you know, the process is the punishment. And, yes. uh, you know, having something like that hanging over your head at work for, for months and having people talk about whether you're a bigot or not, even if nothing comes of it, is, is a punishment. Um, so hopefully this judge will kind of shortcut some of those things. And then it will also, I think, make employers relook at their policies to say, are, are our policies discriminating or encouraging harassment of gender critical people? What would you, um, I, I, mean, I don't know whether you want to answer this, but do you have a message for, um, for your colleagues in America who, who sought to sort of, um, in effect bully you for um for the beliefs that you held um well i probably shouldn't because the case is still ongoing oh, gosh, of course to... <laughs> of course i'm so sorry no, yeah, it's quite, no, and, no. And so sort of the the people who complained i don't know them they they were in washington and we didn't work closely together um i think one of them we'd exchanged one email about some funding thing you know they weren't close colleagues yeah and they just had seen my seen my tweets and responded, you know, that this is this is transphobic. Um, and I know there were other colleagues who, you know, thought like me that um, sex is real. And there were clearly other colleagues who couldn't understand why it was an issue. You know, why is this the hill that you want to die on? Um, not that they disagreed with me, but they disagreed with um, making a stand on it. Uh, and, you know, I, I still, it's, it's one of the things about this that I still 
kind of puzzles me is how an organization that was all about debate and evidence and um, kind of collegial disagreement and, and often quite robust collegial disagreement. These were, you know, I worked with economists. They're, they're really hard nosed people. They will put price on your granny for, um, <laughs> you know, for, with, with good, good intentions. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they don't shy away from definitions um, and sort of um, being hard nosed in the pursuit of social good. Mm -hmm. But on this topic, they sort of institutionally threw their hands up and said, you know, we can't say we can't say what a woman is when clearly oh. they understood. Yeah, of course but, they did. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess it's quite concerning in a way that it's an international think tank sort of devoted to development. So presumably this mindset and their policies are going to be exported across the world. Um, is, is that something that um, do you think is happening? Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, the organisation I worked for was not promoting um, gender ideology. It was just trying to keep its head out of the debate altogether. Mm -hmm. um, but its funders, so, you know, the, the, the NGO funder complex is quite important in this I think the foundation funders philanthropists who fund um, think tanks who fund academic uh, institutions and who fund uh, you know operational uh, charities from women's refuges uh, international development you know even um, environment you know all of these things are there are women everywhere um, and so all of these organizations think about gender um, by which they mean sex, mm -hmm. but some of them are also pushing um, gender identity ideology. And if a funder makes it a either explicitly a condition of their funding or, or implicitly, you know, that it's frowned upon for somebody to, to question this, then that's very powerful on institutions that you know i mean keeping the lights on keeping the funding coming in is is their number one consideration and so i think you know the role of of um foundation funders on ngos and you know campaigning ngos like like amnesty international and and the women's organizations we talked about um is is hugely important uh and organizations like that they in order to succeed, what they want to do is to punch above their weight, to, you know, to have more influence than their budget and their um, number of people suggest. That's, you know, they want to influence bigger institutions. And if you can get an idea into those organisations, then you can accelerate it and, um, you know, sort of drive it into all kinds of um, policies internationally and you you know um, and the um, the driver of funders with money leads to all kinds of uh, um, you know leads to a response from uh, from grassroots organizations who are chasing the money 
um, and suddenly everyone's saying we don't know what a woman is yeah and, and and all this has come you know like five minutes after me too five minutes after they recognized that institutionally uh they've not been listening to women they've not been thinking about um uh, you know just widespread um sexual harassment and sexual abuse of women in you know across the development sector across hollywood across mm -hmm. the media across corporations you know and it and it's literally kind of five minutes after that was um recognized now we're saying we don't know what a woman is and <laughs> if any of them speak up they're witches and they should be you know ducked in the pond yeah and i've, I've um i've noticed there seem to be a, a set of beliefs that are getting promoted together so um uh, the anti-carceral justice movement seems to be very popular decriminalization of prostitution um within full decriminalization so you know of pimps yeah. and hunters um i've noticed all of these sorts of things seem to be very popular within um those who who fund uh those who fund uh sort of development agencies and ngos um and i can I, i've seen that um center for global development had funding from the bill and melinda gates foundation from the open philanthropies um society um so I'm just wondering what what you think why are these funders tied to these very kind of quite niche um ideological concerns i think um i mean i'd love to talk to bill and melinda obviously separately now um <laughs> <laughs> you know i'd love to talk to george soros to understand what it is he thinks he's doing here with his money um my experience of you know working for not-for-profit organizations and working with funders is that they don't always you know it's actually quite difficult to give away money you'd think it'd be the easiest job in the world but it's actually very difficult because people as soon as you have money to give away people tell you what they think you want to hear in <laughs> order to you know every every conversation you have is with somebody who's who wants your money and it becomes very difficult to um get good information and make good judgments and you also become um sort of captured by the people that you fund because you know you want to feel that you're doing good and so the people that you fund are um categorized as being good and then you can lose um lose judgment about them and at the same time you don't want to be this auditor um you know kind of big brother of of the organizations that you're funding you you know you want them to do what it is that they're good at um so i think you know that there are whole loads of dysfunction in the in the funder ngo complex and and it's hard to know whether this stuff goes right up to the top in all of these organizations certainly i'm sure it does in some of them but in others, I wonder whether, you know, one part of the organization is driving um, gender ideology, another part is thinking about women's rights, and another bit is thinking about democracy, open democracy, and yeah. they're not connecting the dots and they're not thinking this ideology that we're driving is so um, elitist 
it is so disconnected from what ordinary people believe that the only way to make it go through is to uh, dismantle democratic dialogue and democratic oversight and systems. And so organisations like the Soros Foundation, which say and, you know, which I think, you know, genuinely are trying to promote an open society, particularly, um, you know, in Eastern Europe and in, in mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in countries where there are very um, strong challenges to, to democracy and freedom are then kind of hitching their wagon to this crazy ideology, which, which leads you to undermine everything that you stand for. Um, and, you know, and then they say, well, the, those who criticize gender ideology are on the side of, of the, of the right and the religious right. Um, but in practice, I think they're driving people into the arms of, of the religious right in those countries, because if, you know, if the alternative is somebody who's going to come along and say, you know, smash the cis normative heteronormative family <laughs> most you know most people value their cis heteronormative families yeah you know, whatever their whatever their <laughs> own sexual orientation is everybody loves that well not everybody loves their mum but mums are important yeah um, you know families are important human beings are produced by cis heteronormative <laughs> <laughs> reproduction at the end of the day and people should be and mothers <laughs> yeah and mothers and and you know the kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater thing i think does drive people into the arms of of religious conservatives because it's it's the lesser of two evils for them yeah no absolutely and um can you tell me a bit about sex matters the organization that you've just set up yes so i've set up um, Sex Matters, it's a not-for-profit in the UK. Its aim is to re-establish clarity about sex in law and policy, language and culture, particularly to push back on um, the adoption of self-ID, which is what, you know, what we discovered through the debate about whether the law should be changed to allow people to self-identify so to change their sex um, at will was that even though that hadn't happened in law it had happened in practice through um, policies and institutions acting like that was the law already and doing it you know because Stonewall and other organizations have encouraged bullied misinformed them to do it and so we felt so the organization has been set up by um, myself and two lawyers and a biologist uh, that there needed to be a single issue non-partisan campaign to kind of bring back clarity about sex and it builds on and works with you know there's been this flourishing of feminist uh, activism in the UK as as, as the established organizations have failed us there's been this incredible flourishing of grassroots action um, and we're sort of building on that but also going going beyond it in terms of wanting to build an organization that has capacity um, and that also 
doesn't necessarily doesn't belong to the left or the right doesn't belong to any particular school of feminism is really just about the very basics of can we talk about material reality can we talk about sex um can we work out the solutions to what you do with single sex services how you protect everybody's rights um and to do that with, you know, with ordinary language about sex that everyone can use. Excellent. Well, that sounds great. And um, finally, may I ask you, would you do it again? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Excellent. Excellent. Oh, well, well, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you wanted to, to add or that you feel I could have covered that I haven't? Um, People can find Sex Matters online at www.sex-matters.org um, and join the email list, support us, come to our events. Uh, we, we need to have more and more people feeling brave enough to talk about this, particularly at work. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time and, um, and congratulations and good luck on, um, on when the uh, trial resumes. Thank you, Joe. enjoyed listening to this podcast why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for 10 pounds by heading to our website www.thecritic.co.uk